welcome to the Byte Rabbit podcast, where we talk about WebXR, that's VR and AR on the web. My name is Jonathan, one of the founders of Byte Rabbit. Hi, my name is Florian, I'm the other founder of Byte Rabbit and a WebXR game developer. And my name is Darius, intern and WebXR developer at Byte Rabbit. Welcome, everybody, to the White Rabbit podcast. Today, we're joined by Roland Dubois, who has been in the web VR space probably longer than most other people today. Um, so, Roland, welcome. Thank you for having me. The first question I would like to ask you is, tell us about your journey from when you first heard about web VR and over the VirtualEap company that you co-founded and to WebXR News, which you are maintaining right now. Yeah, so WebVR is a step in this entire phase of the immersive website. I'd like to go a little bit more back. Um, actually, when I was still a teenager in 1997 and the movie Titanic came out, um, I remember that like we all were like totally in the fever of Titanic and we're looking online for like movies. And I actually watched that movie in three languages about uh -huh. three times. Yes, <laughs> in all the different kind of countries where my family is from. I, I was looking on the web for content about history and all this kind of stuff. And I came across a website that showcased a 3D model of the Titanic. And interestingly, it wasn't uh, like it was literally on a website. It didn't have to install really anything. There was a, a little plugin involved. And when I was diving through that kind of 3D model, I was navigating it with a cursor. And then I basically, it was the first time I got in touch with this uh, VRML format, which is a, a virtual reality markup language that was brought to light uh, in 1995, I think, uh, from Mark Pesci, Tony Parisi, and Peter Kennard. And that was the very first 3D visualization uh, markup language for the web. I didn't really know too much about web programming and all this kind of stuff. But the fact was that I could actually go on a browser and navigate this thing like I was playing Doom, right, uh, with a cursor. And then I saved that page and it was a WRL file. And you basically could read semantically what's being described. So that was the first time it totally blew me away because you could actually see and plain text language, uh, what, what was visualized. So that was the really first kind of uh, moment where I realized like, oh, damn it, you can actually do more than, uh, than just 2D stuff on the web. You can make it dimensional. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Jurassic Park and like I said, Titanic and all these other movies, they were actually inspiring me to do 3D stuff. And I wanted to first go into the special effects space. But um, yeah, I was tinkering with um, 3D programs um, uh, on my computer, always pushing the limits of that PC, that poor thing. And uh, I actually learned Flash and ActionScript uh, during my um, civil service uh, that I did in a hospital. And with that, I got to apply for um, communication design at the University of Applied Sciences in Munich. And originally, I actually wanted to do more industrial design because I wanted to actually build things, but I didn't get in. So I just got into communication design. Uh, which turned out to be much better because <laughs> of the much broader spectrum of what you actually learn. It's multidisciplinary kind of studying from like branding to marketing, to typography, to photography, to layout, to uh, up to fine art. Um, and I was actually picking them some computer science classes there where I learned lingo, which is like the, the grandfather of ActionScript or ECMAScript's languages. And we were working with Macromedia Director. And if you, I don't know if you remember these websites called miniclip.com or shockwave.com. 
those were like these little gaming websites. It's very funny that, you know, like you have uh, a construct arcade. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what inspired that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was totally addicted to these mini games and I was trying to recreate some of them. Cool. But, um, but truthfully, like Flash was giving me a, a tool to create animations and graphics and also push the boundaries of the browser and what, what I could do actually with, uh, with websites. Mm-hmm. And so while I was studying, uh, um, I was actually doing some money on the side with creating websites. That was around the time of the second wave of browser wars. If you, if you remember that when like Chrome was basically taking over and like, uh, mobile first website thinking came out and mm-hmm. it was about the time when the first iPhone came out as well. For me, Flash was like the safe haven because I didn't have to bother with all <laughs> the different standards, with all the different kind of things that break. And I was always able to kind of push the boundaries of what you could actually produce within a browser. And obviously it was a cop out because, you know, like um, you were uh, tied to a plugin, you needed to have like a proprietary kind of piece of software on your browser in order to showcase something or visualize something which was flash flash was a, a product was owned by macromedia first and then by adobe i was building websites with uh, some student friends and communication design obviously we're doing designs web designs and all this kind of stuff so we did cash on the side of our building websites for restaurants in munich and one of the web restaurant websites we built actually we created a 360 degree walkthrough in flash Oh, so uh, like uh, far long before that thing was a two line kind of <laughs> uh, stereoscopic photography wasn't really something that was easily to get. So we actually commissioned photographers that created a series of photos and stitched them together. And then we basically got their plugin to integrate into the Flash uh, website. And then with that kind of, we, we showcased it. So it was kind of like cutting edge and it was always something that I was really interested in, like creating immersion, but 3D on a browser, obviously not wrapped around you. Mm-hmm. In, in my last years of studying communication design, I, I got the chance to work actually at, at, at Siemens Mobile. At that time, Siemens still created mobile phones, you believe yeah. it or not. So I worked in the innovations lab. So that means I was very much in touch with cutting edge technology, cutting edge devices, building out UI design the interfaces and animated prototypes. So it was basically building out how it should work and created icon libraries where, where pixel ratios weren't square. They were actually stretched because of the, the LED displays. So it's really interesting kind of stuff. But I was working on devices that weren't actually going to hit the market anytime soon. Siemens Mobile was purchased by BenQ and turned into BenQ Mobile. Uh And what happened was that they basically bought this department Mm -hmm. and then laid everyone off because (laughs) they just were really interested in the ideas. And so with me being... uh, free like a bird. I, um, I was uh, freelancing for a few advertising agencies in Munich. And then I got the chance to intern for three months uh, in a, a branding agency in New York City in 2006. So I wasn't finished with university quite yet, but I just said, oh, I'll take a three months hiatus and let's go to New York and <laughs> figure out how that is. Yeah. And, and, and then I came to New York and I, uh, I was totally blown away by the energy, the kind of interest in innovation, the just going for it and the spirit. There's a big difference between the agency world and Germany was the agency world in New York. So I was really attracted to that because I always like cutting edge on the edge, always the next big thing and really full-blown buy-in and just trying. Then you're pretty good in WebXR if you're into cutting edge technology. I, I approach WebXR from a slightly different angle than most people. And I will tell you more about it and what, what I'm thinking uh, about uh, like what makes WebXR 
usable, right? And, and how do we get adoption? So I returned to Munich, finished my degree, uh, got a work visa and returned to New York um, and worked then there, taking over the digital department, building out end-to-end products to the clients. After the, the mortgage crisis, I actually took a big leap of faith and started my own company with a friend. Uh, and this was a boutique development agency. Mm-hmm. I ran that agency for plus six years. And most of the products I did were two-dimensional. They were um, iPhone apps, Android apps, uh, mini games, uh, digital ad campaigns, mostly Flash, then transitioned to HTML5 and JavaScript um, because Flash was fading out in that kind of ecosystem. And the last two years of my company, I was uh, traveling across the United States, teaching Android app development, like the design process from ideation to deployment Mm -hmm. uh, in an engagement with Samsung and Scholastic. So I got to actually coach and teach in in 10 different states of the US. That was very, very interesting and, and, and rewarding. And, and then I realized that I just didn't want to do agency stuff anymore because it was just so short-lived. And, and I just wanted to do something else. We decided to close the shop and go our separate ways. Uh, and I became design director at Studio Zeltman. I don't know if you know Jeffrey Zeltman. He's a very interesting figure, especially in the web standard movement. He was one of the people that were the most prominent. And he actually wrote a book called Designing for Web Standards. And it's like a book that's been translated on different languages and is basically the Bible of web standards for universities across the US and the world. And uh, he is known for a list apart, which is like this blog that uh, talks about web standards and, um, and, and the, the proper way how to create web content. He has a, a book series called The Book Apart which are like small books that are very easy to read and digest. They talk about accessibility, talk about mobile web and, and use of font types in, in web. So everything that's for web designers and web content creators, really, really useful and really interesting, like easy to digest books. And, and uh, so I worked with him as design director side by side in his new studio and worked on a few larger clients. And I, like, I really got to hone down on web standards there. Like I really like got deep into uh, standard compliance, atomic design principles, pattern libraries, all that kind of stuff. And also I met a lot of interesting people uh, like from Mozilla and from the W3C. And that's why I actually learned the first time about Mozilla's efforts in A-Frame or the first version of A-Frame 2015 was Mozilla VR, I think. So I, I got exposed to that framework uh, right at that time. And, and I've been starting to like uh, building prototype with it right now, uh, right at that point. Like I think I started with A-Frame 0.2. Um, and yeah, so, and uh, yeah, so I was always looking for opportunities, how to, now, now that it's like full circle, I came from that, that like, oh, I can do some fancy stuff with Flash, like, oh, I can see 3D on the browser. I don't have to install anything. I just look at it. Now that kind of reality come back, comes back and it's like, oh, how do I use that in a way with the last years of learning how to build two-dimensional software or like just build out structured software in a way that can be shipped, especially as by department as my company that I had before. Um, we were a boutique agency, so a lot of advertising agencies came up with ideas and we had to manage the expectations. And so, so basically understanding like the 2D product space and then bringing in this uh, extra level of immersive medium 
and, and make that useful from a user's perspective, right? Not just for, for fancy and glamour, but more like what can that medium give me that I don't get if I just purely go with traditional kind of ways how to showcase in content. Yeah, so that was the first time I, I heard about uh, that VR. After that, I joined Virtually, <laughs> and then I worked at a two-sided marketplace for manned fashion. Then I switched to a SaaS startup for building automation systems and facility management. And now I'm working at a SaaS startup for shop management systems for car repair shops. So you can see that I always have this parallel track of working in 2D software, but always having parallel that kind of XR. And if you look at the companies that I've been working with, I always try to bring in some aspect of XR into the current stack. One example of that would be um, the two-sided marketplace for men fashion. Like it's like like you 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 share uh, you you sell used clothes, and they're high-level clothes, they're expensive, Dior and whatever. Like uh, one thing that came out during that time was the AR measuring tool on the iPhone. Right. One one thing that was really uh, like an opportunity here was to build trust with the buyer. And that's a buyer and a seller. The seller can take a photo with their phone. Uh, of the piece of cloth that they have and measure it with a measuring tape that we built into the app as a feature add, add the measurements on top of that photo and therefore avoid that the buyer ask them for measurements and also give the buyer some kind of proof that this product is actually on the spot because you, they like to prevent fraud and you know all this kind of stuff you know like so so th there was an opportunity there to bring in XR into this 2d stack. And for the building automation system, uh, software as a service product, one aspect was to understand the ecosystem of a building. Um, when you go for HVAC systems, elevator, electricity, heat, heat hot water, mm. all of those kind of machines and systems have alarms and alerts the, and, and sensors that go off. Yeah. So to showcase that in a holistic way as a three-dimensional structure in a building would surface more in-depth knowledge about where causes can come from, you know? If alarms go off on the side of the building, it's not because it might be something wrong inside of the building. It might be construction on the street that triggers all those alarms. You have very, very limited resources. The facility management teams are small. They usually under budgeted. You have to figure out how long it takes them from go going from A to B. So 3D visualization in that kind of space would, be, would add contextual value, situational awareness that you can bring out with 3D visualization and that kind of stuff. I work at the, the SaaS startup for the building automation systems until July 2020 and then then COVID uh, because it was a small startup COVID free, freed me yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so at that time I actually also got the chance to start a teaching at a school of visual arts designing for immersive experiences human machine and human computer interface uh, design principles and patterns. I had a class uh, that I took over from a friend that I was teaching there. And because I, I had some kind of gap, I started WebXR News. Okay. Um, yeah, I see. So That's nice. It's become a pretty valuable resource. So I guess that explains why you did that, because I've always felt like, OK, there's VR news websites that have spawned over the years, but there's no like really good source for a news website for WebXR. There were newsletters before. Uh, Immersive Web, Web Weekly, for example, is a good one. But like with WebXR News, that is a more frequent newsletter and you feel like you don't miss as much anymore. Probably, I assume you're 
up to date on the WebXR space anyway, and therefore it was just easy to also post these links on a on a website? Yeah, so a WebXR news was an experiment, right? So like because I, I, I had ample time, I was working on some XR projects. Um, one thing is that I'm really bad at doing bookmarks. So, <laughs> so because I'm using different browsers for different things, I wanted a place where um, I can actually like collect my own thoughts and like collect the very important work that's been done over the years. So um, I got across that kind of like the idea of making a newsletter website like that because um, I, I was meeting up with my friend Pilar. Pilar Aranda is, uh, I don't know if you, she, she, her handle is Immersive Pilar. She's also very active in, in the New York space uh, in, in AR mostly. And uh, right now she's basically leading Herman Miller to AR. So that's a pretty, pretty cool job that okay. she's doing. Uh, she actually has ARKit News. Nice. Uh, as that she curated and and then she said that I should give it a shot. She basically inspired me to do something like that. And I ran that first as a uh, as as an experiment. But I, I knew that that the um, immersive web uh, weekly uh, was a curated newsletter from Jordan uh, Santel, and I, I I talked to him about maybe helping him out on that one as well. Uh, but um, it, it turned out that. They, they wanted it very curated and very specific. And then uh, Trevor's Flowers took over and, and they really diligently curate this immersive weekly newsletter, very focused on a few things and very clearly targeted towards the community itself. And But, uh, but I wanted to actually showcase to the outside world what WebXR has to offer, right? Okay. So I wanted to have a, a newsletter that's less deep, but more broad. I wanted to like actually see all the other all links, all the products, all the features, all the uh, conferences, all the advertising products that are t touching WebXR and have slightly to do like in the economy, like with the browsers and whatever that accept now certain standards. I wanted to showcase that and basically make a case. So like when you search for it, you, you can find it. So I started that newsletter in October last year and i did it as experiment first i wanted to run it for a month doing every day a newsletter and see can i fill that thing is there enough mm -hmm. is there enough stuff there right. and yeah and it turned out that there was enough so uh, then <laughs> i basically registered in november the uh, the twitter account and then pushed all my uh, newsletters through twitter funny enough uh, that was actually the time when ben Irvin was starting his webxr awards like right then right there it's like oh okay mm -hmm. that's cool so now now we're gonna get somewhere and um yeah and uh, ever since then i have been collecting like uh, organically uh, followers on the Twitter account where I'm like about 600 something followers, which is cool. I, I do update it every day except Sundays because <laughs> it's like, hey, it takes me, it takes me a little while. Sometimes it's really quick. Sometimes I really have to dig. <laughs> but the interesting part is like, I, I'm not like discriminatory towards different languages. I have German stuff, I have French stuff, I have Japanese stuff and Korean, whatever is there, whatever it has to do with any kind of the frameworks or WebXR content is going to be hosted and shared on there. So that's, that's the goal. That's cool. So compared to uh, Immersive Web Weekly, which is probably more targeted as at developers or designers in the WebXR space, uh, WebXR News is more general, more broad, also yeah. maybe targeted to people who are just interested yeah. in where the industry is heading, where it's going, what people are doing with it. 
That's that's very very cool. And I bet like now that there's more stuff, it's like a totally different story compared to back when you co-founded Virtualeap, where WebVR was really not in a <laughs> like very popular state yet, right? How was the WebVR state back then? Virtualeap uh, ran this this WebXR hackathon in 2017, and uh, Amir uh, I met Amir through that uh, hackathon actually. Uh, you know, I later joined Virtualeap to, to co-found their the next level of their product. But Virtualeap was building that WebXR hackathon with and for the community. Interestingly enough, that was the very first time there was a hackathon in that space. And, and it has a huge amount of traction there because this just became a reality. You don't have this world garden systems. You don't have to install anything. You don't have to ask, please, 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 uh, host my product. Um, you just build it and uh, put it out there. And, and the, and the frameworks like A-Frame were like, uh, were really easy to adopt. There was a ton of products popping up that allow you to create three-dimensional content. FDR from the 2016 to 2018, I think had like a huge boom of like creative ideas, people thinking about it in a, like in a productive way. It's like data visualization and like, how can I use it in order to do empathy stuff or to, to build out like make less games, more like what's out there, what's not been done yet, let's do it. So I've, I've seen a ton of creative stuff uh, over the last years. Uh, and, but after the, yeah, in 2018, so the uh, virtually hackathon ran for two years. The first year, uh, I was not involved, but the second year I actually was co-organizing it. And I remember that you, you, you guys were working on a product called VR Pong in that space. Like it really like kind of uh, like, uh, like made it engaging and fun. Right. Like 2017 was like um, uh, some developers uh, that had crazy kind of ideas uh, coming from from all different corners. And in 2018, it was more like, oh, let's 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 get, get game designers on it. Like cause there's there's some real stuff that I can do with JavaScript and like push some boundaries. Yeah. So then that all kind of like it got into some some rocky uh, kind of area when the the 2018 the, the shift from web vr to web xr device api mm -hmm. was introduced right yeah so a lot of things started breaking yeah. a lot of people got a lot of people got uh, like so so annoyed that they just gave up on it um you know yeah it was interesting because like that actually was one of the things that got us into web vr in the first place like we saw the web vr space rather passively for for a couple of years and then with 2018 with the virtually hackathon um, the second one in this case we decided hey we're gonna prototype this uh, technological thing where we use WebAssembly to uh, build a web game like something that I think not many people had done before if at all because I remember like even building the VR support for WebAssembly basically wrapping that and all <laughs> um, but that was really cool basically in exactly that rocky time we founded Construct Arcade or we launched Construct Arcade, which turned out to exactly be a really big problem. We just tried to keep uh, games running and keep them alive for over this switch. But really, we we did have a hard time and uh, uh, quite a few games didn't actually make it through to WebXR. So I was <laughs> actually pretty sad because there's still not too many web games out there, WebXR games out there. It's getting more and more with uh, hackathons coming and uh, having WebXR categories like 
the GS13K games by uh, Andre Major, who was also on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Things like that do bring a lot of attention to the space, I believe. And thank you again for the hackathon, because without it, I think we wouldn't be in the space, likely. And Construct Arcade probably wouldn't exist either. So There was a bunch of people that uh, created a ton of interesting projects in, in, in 3JS and WebGL basic stuff, you know, like not, not actually building on top of any kind of uh, framework at that time. And most of the uh, games were like really just 3JS or um, I think Babylon JS was starting to uh, get popular at that time as well. I was mostly working with A-Frame at that time, which is basically an abstraction of 3JS. And therefore, because there's a entity component system as an abstraction, the 3JS underlying layer might be able to change, but then the semantics of the actual A-Frame program won't change. So you, you, you won't really see any kind of impact due to updates because it's like uh, it deprecation doesn't really happen that, that often. The issue of with deprecation, I think that's, that's like generally a problem with web. That's always been an issue with uh, Internet Explorer being there and stuff not working or Apple's WebKit being totally different in some areas when it comes to adopting standards. Uh, that will and always be an issue on the web, I guess. But I think we're moving on a good trajectory right now. We're at least on the basis for WebXR, we're safe. We know like what the session, what a session is and how we can query it and all that stuff. So hopefully that'll stay for the foreseeable future the, the things that changed after 2018 i think is that more and more i saw like uh like ready-made kind of platforms popping up like uh like the um, um like um, aws sumerian came out which also is based on 3js and we have uh, we have a lot of like uh, like creation platforms and, and because there's been more and more creation platforms out there you see more and more cookie cutter projects coming out so it's less uh, innovative designs it's more like relying on existing design patterns uh, if you think about uh, the react uh, vr and then later react now react 360 uh, they were introducing uh, some kind of UI elements, graphical user interfaces that were very much inspired by the 2D, maybe material design kind of interface, which I, for my, myself, thought was completely counterintuitive mm-hmm. and, 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 and basically just giving people something that they can interact with out of the box, not giving them a chance to actually like create something that's their own or create something that's meaningful and can be tested with real users and maybe it has a better approach and how to basically you by by getting like cookie cutter stuff you basically like put things together it's like the blueprint kind of like bootstrap websites everything looked the same you you basically take away a lot of creative energy for the purpose of speed to market or speed to put put something out there and see how it works like it's good to have something to rely on to build and and you know it works right you don't have to reinvent the wheel ten thousand times but the problem is that like you're relying on those standards as being like the the ultimate truth Right. It's like, okay, this is, this is how interfaces should be. Instead of actually second guessing that and not understanding really what, what's the thoughts behind the elements that you're using. It basically like makes a lot of people lazy uh, of thinking how the users in the end will interact with the software. That's, that's my, my critique to, to like what happened with uh, the, the, the tools that come out. There's a lot of things that are just far too easy. Plug a few things together. That's also an issue with Unity, though. That's not just for the web now, because Unity having a lot of uh, 
free assets on their store caused a lot of people to release games that just use the same asset over and over again. Uh, absolutely. Um, that, that's, uh, I mean, in 2017, I think I started the A-Frame New York City meetup group. The reason for that meetup was basically to share to the communities. At first, I, I was teaching students at Parsons School of Design and at our lab, the Reality Lab in Brooklyn. Uh, like I was teaching basically people how to build VR content or like now immersive content through a browser by using a frame. And there I was basically like encouraging them and like building out artistic stuff. So the people that were actually coming to those workshops and they were always free and never wanted to make money with that stuff anyways. I just wanted to share the knowledge and like get interesting problems to solve. And I also ha I have all of the content that I built over the years uh, on a GitHub repository that is openly usable and shared. I, I once had a YouTube channel that got canceled and now I lost all my YouTube videos. But yeah, so the content is all on GitHub. Uh, and then I later on use Glitch for all my, my teachings and, and my, my lessons. But the, the purpose of the FM Media Group was that uh, I wanted to get people that are in different kind of sectors like uh, fashion or art or music to create three-dimensional content just by using semantic HTML elements and basically visualize what they want to do. Because A-Frame is an amazing platform to prototype, you know, like with a Google Cardboard kind of viewer. And even now down to any kind of like the, I mean, A-Frame runs on the Magic Leap 1 and it runs on the uh, HoloLens 2. And like basically all of the browsers support that framework. So you can actually see three-dimensional content in high-level VR headsets just as much as on your phone or in a cardboard cutout thing that's like eight bucks. So for me, it was important that people in touch with dimensional thinking and designing. Because what I, what I saw also is that a lot of uh, the developers that created content in, in VR were directly coming from the gaming industry or from the movie industry. You have this, this, this kind of distorted perception of bringing in 2D design interfaces into, let's just put it in space as on a panel, you know, like all of a sudden it's VR, or you have like interfaces that uh, Iron Man is using in his suit, right? Like with all the measurements, he's flying over Manhattan 10 miles down the road. He sees like the height of this uh, Statue of Liberty is this high. And like, there's so much data that basically showcases the processing power of a suit, right? But it's absolutely unusable. White text on noisy background and three three point font types, like no one can read it, no one can use it. Why do we have it, right? So all the movies that so far have been created, like Minority Report's been quoted so much by like, oh, innovative interfaces, but this is a transparent glass interface, right? So like anyone that walks behind it makes your text not readable anymore because Text needs to be like correctly readable, correctly digestible, like the text length. And this is me talking from like design for poster design, layouting and font readability and color contrast and all this kind of stuff. All that suffers on, on, on any like flashiness and, and, and oh, this looks good. But it, looking good doesn't make it usable, right? You've seen over the years all that kind of bias towards how interfaces in VR and immersive technology should look like. And that actually like make the users suffer, right? Because they wouldn't get actually as much usability and as much content or value out of the content because it was tilted towards it making look fancy instead of making it usable. So that's, that's another thing. So with, with the A-Frame workshops that I did and, and the outreach programs and all this other stuff, I was trying to get other people into the space 
and share the knowledge. So it turns out architects are probably the most valuable like designers in, in VR because they just understand the, the volume a person takes in space, the distance to interactable and the affordances and the interactable elements in space, proprioception, all these kind of layers that you don't think about because if working on a 2D device, that interaction between you and the 2D device is something you just don't think about. But you have to bridge that kind of space from human to machine that has to be virtually created if you're working on a VR headset. That becomes more and more interesting when things like hand tracking or eye tracking come into play when you have interfaces that are supposed to act with it and interact with it and actually give the user also feedback, right? So I'm really excited about what the developments there are going to be. While we're also talking about uh, input devices, you've also been doing some amazing work in ethics in WebXR and about accessibility. So would you mind talking to us about that? Yeah, so um, when, when I'm thinking about the, the biggest issues uh, that we have to solve in order to make like WebXR uh, like, uh, like a, a real medium to consume, right? Um, the, on the one hand, you have the awareness kind of stuff that I talked about. I'm doing outreach programs. Uh, I'm doing A-Frame New York City meetup groups and, and do the newsletter and do hackathons. Accessibility, and I, I wrote an article about this, I think, in 2016, about the future of VR being the web, but one of the main factors being it has to be accessible. Coming from the web standard space, to understand that we have to create content that is to be catered to every person and not just the people that can afford a fancy headset. That's not actually an adoption problem, it's a legal problem. So I don't know if you guys have heard about the Robles versus Domino's pizza lawsuit case that concluded in October 2019. Guillermo Robles is a blind person that uh, sued Domino's pizza because the company had a website where you could customize your pizza. And he, since he was blind, he couldn't use his screen reading software to customize his pizza, which is, you know, if you think about it, a web that is semantically correctly built, that you could literally like use a keyboard to like execute certain commands and mm -hmm. fill out forms and create an order something. Now in the US, there's something called the ADA, um, the uh, American Disabilities Act. And therefore like he had all the rights to be able to order a pizza and Domino's was fighting for years. It went back and forth. In October, 2019, that lawsuit finally concluded. The courts decided that the, pla the places of public accommodation Right. That's like what websites or any kind of software that's facing the outside world, e-commerce, all the kind of stuff needs to be ADA compliant. <clears throat> and that based on the VCAC 2.0, 2.1 guidelines. That's so web accessibility guidelines for the web. Now, what's interesting here, this lawsuit was like breaking news because Dominus not only had a website, they also had an iPhone app. And all of a sudden, the ADA compliance applied not only to the website, but also the iPhone app. Oh, wow. So you had uh, accessibility guide, uh, you had to apply the web accessibility guidelines to both different devices because the content was shared. So if you think about it, like it's cross device ADA compliance. You know, it's like you go from web to mobile. You could imagine that the next thing is going from web to mobile to VR device, right? Because the content that you're sharing has to be ADA compliant. Now, since 2016, I haven't really seen very much going on in the WebXR space. And that's like, why is nobody actually carrying over all the rich and amazing accessibility features that are native to standard compliant websites 
and brings them into the WebXR space. Truth is, you know, like for minimum viable products or like just like gamified little experiments, accessibility is not really like a big thought process. A lot of apps that go out there, their focus is to just uh, be performant, like deal with the complexities of WebXR itself, rather than thinking about like, what kind of input devices do I want to enable, right? But but it didn't stop there, right? So like, we basically have to use the web accessibility guidelines as a benchmark for cross-device content. In November of 2020, there was another lawsuit that came out, which is the first lawsuit towards a VR company. So it was Dylan Panara, versus HTC Corp. And Dylan is a, a profoundly deaf person that wanted to use Viveport Infinity. It's like this HTC gaming service, like a Netflix yeah. or VR kind of thing. And he wanted to use that on the Oculus Rift. Now, and, and, and he basically sued HTC because Viveport has no captions. Now, Netflix has by law captions, mm -hmm. But Viveport does not. And we're talking about 15 to 20% of the world's population that have some kind of accessibility needs, right? So that's a billion people. And if you have software that you're sharing and you don't think about inclusiveness or accessibility, you're just setting yourself up for big trouble. Um, especially in the US, once a lawsuit has been filed, there's then like a precedent clause and then you basically can see these things popping up everywhere. So it's basically just once this is established as a given, you have to think about it. I've been working with accessibility prototypes for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I've, uh, I'm part of the W3C Immersive Web Community Group. And in 2017, I was actually a conduit for accessibility in Brussels, where I was basically showcasing my prototype where I built a A-frame based VR space with spatial audio that a blind person can navigate. It was like an Ital Italian piazza that was pure, purely cued out with like zones of sound where you basically can navigate. So you can trigger by like gaze trigger and go to a position and you would have a pace, a sound of pace of walking. So you get the, the feeling of immersion while walking from place to place with this spatial audio at that time. So I was showcasing that as a, a proof of concept that you could actually create immersion for people that don't see. Most of my hackathon projects are like uh, focused around accessibility and like experiments. Like I, I built an experiment at the MIT Reality Virtually Hackathon that was creating alternatives for the gaze click. People with quadriplegia or like paralyzed users to navigate virtual reality just with a binary input, with SIPPUF input. So, and I was basically using what they use as software where like they have the cursor wander around the screen and they just set target and stop and uh, start places and then trigger different states. I wrote an entire article about this. I, I saw it. I read your article. It's pretty good. Uh, so it'll be in the description if one of our listeners wants to read it. It's, I definitely recommend it. Yeah. And this was basically the second guessing what was being used as the common lowest common denominator as being gaze input, which assumes that everyone has a free range of motion in the neck, which is just not the case. Just think about sitting in an airplane. Okay. It's not about like physical disability as being like your everyday kind of thing. It's being like a situational disability as well. So we have to find ways how to navigate virtual content on all different kinds of layers in order to make content accessible. If you want to watch something mute and read captions because you don't want to wake anyone up, whatever, like it's a feasible reason to, to use captions. And it's not just a privilege kind of thing. It's like a common thing. So the rules are, if you have sound content, have some kind of text equivalent that can be read out either visually 
or with the screen reader or with like text uh, text output assisted technology. Not just on the web, also on native experiences for VR devices. I think there's not much, even like uh, talking about infrastructure when developing software, I don't think there's any standards that people use really for things like closed captions, like you said, or um, some kind of a visual interaction tool for people who are not uh, able to move their heads. And uh, those things have to be done custom by developers. So there's a lot of overhead to develop those tools. There is actually uh, surprisingly a lot out there. I started working uh, on like accessibility prototypes like since I wrote that article back then. And I actually partnered with a friend of mine, Thomas Logan. He has a company called Equal Entry. And that is a, that is a company that is focused on accessibility support for traditional 2D software and products and he focused more and more on the VR space. He actually has a uh, accessibility meetup called Accessibility VR. He's holding that in Mozilla Hubs and he has been actively working with the Hubs team to make Hubs more accessible. So he submitted a few things that keyboard accessibility things like uh, like like uh, using keyboard in order to get reactions and stuff like that. And he has a live caption always uh, on presentations when when people present. So it is actually truly an accessible virtual uh, meetup. I was on his like meetup before he switched to uh, Mozilla Hubs. He did it in person <laughs> in New York. Uh, now you know he lives in Japan, so it's understandable that he's uh, switched to um, uh, Mozilla Hubs. But I was working on a another prototype for blind users for the New York City area. Actually, we did a uh, a training prototype. There's a street crossing, um, I think it's 23rd Street and 5th Avenue in New York City, which is a highly crazy street, uh, like uh, multiple lanes and bike lanes and all this kind of stuff. And not too far away from that is actually a, uh, a community housing for blind people. They have been getting into accidents on that street corner because of the, the noise and the craziness. So we actually mapped out that street in A-frame and use the Google Ambisonic Audio Library, Google Resonate, exactly. And, and yeah, we're taping some kind of street sounds. And basically what we did was we created a VR experience for people that wander that kind of street corner in VR and listen to cues, like auto cues, like a car, a bike, a bus crossing from left, from right some crazy person on the street corner shouting out some songs or whatever. So the idea is like to get them familiar with that street corner and then bring in scenarios. And also one of the, the things that Thomas was working on is like the wayfinding systems on street corners where you press a button and it gives you some weird sounds, like beeping sounds to teach people like to knowing, okay, I, I can cross uh, north or I can cross south when I hear different kind of uh, tonations of the sounds based on that street crossing. That prototype gave people a chance to orient themselves and then walk across the street. We presented that to the Department of Transportation in New York City. So it was an interesting experiment that I presented on, on his meetup that was recorded. That recording actually was then referenced in, in a presentation by Larry Goldberg from Verizon Media in his uh, accessibility for XR. And shortly after, the XR Access Initiative was created. It's an initiative that's led by Connected Experiences Lab for, at Cornell Tech and uh, the Verizon Media Company. And I was invited there uh, like as one of the inaugural members. And it's a lot of uh, large corporations and companies that's 
there's Google, there's uh, Magic Leap, there's Microsoft, there's like all the big players are part of that uh, initiative. The reason to build that was to kind of define the needs and standards and some guidelines in order to bring accessibility closer into this XR content. And now there's the second year and now they actually do have uh, some real uh, strategic documents that you can download and look into. Like, Able Gamers, if you don't know about those, ablegamers.org, they, they always have been there. The focus of Able Gamers was actually to bring in uh, accessibility to game consoles. There's been a lot of initiatives, like years back when like the Playstations came out, that oh, you have this kind of remote device, right? Like this gamepad. And there's been a lot of uh, outreach nonprofit organizations that rig those devices to make them accessible for kids that are missing limbs or have less motoric abilities to be part of the gaming community. And, actually play with other people. So that device and that rigged kind of change device was then enabling them to be part of it. So Able Gamers actually set up a lot of standards on like how to make 3D like gaming content accessible. And a lot of that was uh, carried over into the XR space. And obviously XR is not all games, but it, it's basically a merger of the web accessibility guidelines and whatever the gaming industry has done so far. And it's been a lot done in the traditional gaming industry to bring in accessibility. So there's a lot of guidelines there and a lot of examples. I remember seeing the Xbox controller that they released for gamers with disabilities that was a super important. And I thought it was one of the greatest projects they did in the last couple of years when it came to accessibility. Yes, yeah, so, yes, Microsoft, Microsoft has always been super, super upfront and out there. Surprisingly, Apple has been very quiet about it. Accessibility on the iPhone now is uh, like absolutely top. Um, like if, when the iPhone first came out and uh, you see this with a lot of hardware and that's the whole game, right? Like you, you cater to early adopters and you don't really care about accessibility because it doesn't really, it's not really the, the people that buy your first hardware. Like the iPhone came out in 2007. Like in two generations later, like the iPhone 3JS, at that point, the iPhone 3JS with the, the new um, iOS system actually was then accessible. So it took them two years to make that device accessible. What were some of the features that they brought in that made it more accessible? Uh, yeah, so the voice over, like, the, like a, a blind user would not be able to navigate an iPhone up to the iPhone 3JS. So it was just basically a useless brick for them. You know, it's just... Uh, not that much possible anymore right now because of the content and, and the requirements, right? So you could pull it up in 2007, but I don't think you can pull it up now. So I, I know that uh, Oculus does a lot of accessibility efforts, um, but mostly around physical disability, like wheelchair bound and stuff like that. In my opinion, it's not enough, right? But yeah, I, I, like I said, I always like the edge case. I was in the extreme space. <laughs> Interesting enough, before we started working on WebXR, we uh, were working for, with a company who did medical um, technologies in VR. And they were helping people who had who've had accidents recover their usage of their limbs by using um, mirror therapy. And so they were doing some really interesting things when it came to accessibility and thinking about how to get movement from one person into a VR setup that makes it uh, work in a medical nice, aspect. Yeah. I mean, medi medical uh, VR, so that's that's where it really comes becomes important, right? Like accessibility to that point, right? By law, if you have software or like content that's not accessible, 
let's say so you're creating software that's uh, for for medical use or you're creating software that's for education or it's any like general use that if you don't have it accessible it's basically a deal breaker you won't be able to sell it at that point right so like not having educational like medical kind of software especially when you think about elder tech and that kind of stuff right think about screen readers right screen readability or like text readability, font size, you know, if you don't allow the user to increase the font size to make this stuff readable, because maybe that person wears very strong glasses and doesn't really see the text correctly, you basically make your software unusable for that demographic, which makes it unsellable and unsupportable by anything in the US that is government funded, hospitals, schools, military, anything that is government funded has to be ADA compliant. Otherwise, they lose funding, literally. So, and, and that's just the law. I, I know a lot of educational VR content comes out right now, and, and, and it's mostly experimentative. But as soon as you hit large-scale classrooms, there's going to be two out of 10 students that will need accessibility. I think a lot of, a lot of apps that start off as small teams then grow they will have to think more and more in this direction so i'm thinking like in terms of like games like let's say beat saber or something they've been adding features that allow you to use one controller even simple things like that i think can be helpful for absolutely certain demographics and moving more and more into the direction of uh having agnostic input i think is incredibly important you wrote in your article also about the fusing cursor i believe in a-frame which is uh the default input uh, component which is just one line you add it as an attribute and it's in i think that's a great thing is just using the gaze to input and that's something that definitely needs to be more and more talked about so thanks for bringing attention more into this conversation let's rewind a bit you talked about virtual leap i mean it hosted the webvr hackathons back then what did virtual leap originally set out to do and how did it change since you left because i believe now they do brain training for vr exactly so um I, like like i said i i met amir through the webeka xr hackathon in 2017 and and uh, amir was writing a lot of articles about the emergence of webvr and like he's been really present in that space and because i like they partnered with the uh, new york city vr hackathon that that I, I built a project for. Virtually, uh, actually did the hackathons as a, uh, like basically as an outreach uh, to the community. And virtually actually only became a startup when they started going into like attention tracking. They had a web-based API that basically calculated how much focus you have on a certain object in virtual space. And the hackathons were basically a great place to experiment with the API, to connect with developers and maybe source talent, right? So when I joined virtually in 2018, the, uh, the current CTO at that time was branching off in a, a, another, um, another spaces. So he, he left and I was brought on. And then I, I looked at the attention tracking metric they had at that time. And we're thinking about it in a more scalable way and experimenting with that observe the observer kind of approach and uh, learning about biometric algorithms, understanding posture and posture and, and uh, behavioral patterns and movements and micro gestures and all this kind of stuff. And because we needed to make sure that we can track and understand and learn about those biometrics, uh, we actually started creating little gaming access to test them. There was one thing I called the attention lab that we created in the very beginning. And then it then turned out that uh, the games were actually a much better market entry 
than the biometric algorithms because they didn't have really like a product market fit. What are you going to do with all that information and how are we going to use it? On top of that, we, we started dipping our toes into machine learning and realized there's a lot of R&D, years of R&D needed in order to really make it. A few biometric algorithms were really, really promising or interesting. The games were basically the next generation for cognitive assessment, right? So because you could use whatever like cognitive tests were built uh, uh, and then translate them into VR, there's like directly an, uh, an immediate need not to set up some kind of environment in real life, but actually set it up in VR and then attract some deep knowledge about how your brain works in, inside of those apps. They went from, from the attention tracking to the biometric algorithms. A few things changed with the, the company. First, it had a branch in, in London and then had a branch in, in Berlin. And it was all different kind of funding structures. So there was a lot of movement, but they consolidated and now are completely in Lisbon. I wanted to focus more on the aspects of flexibility in the products that I stepped aside because I started working as a co-founder on a chief experience officer, creating the first game. And then they brought in some game designers in Lisbon that are like 10 times better than me in that world. And, and it's like, okay, you know what? I let uh, Amir and Hossein like drive the ship. And I was focusing on aspects of accessibility to give that product stack that broader range of usability because color contrast, readability, aspects of physical disability, you know, like one arm versus two arm, like you said, with Beat Saber. That kind of thing was more interesting to me, especially because virtually now partners with elder tech. They have senior centers, like one of the largest senior communities in Lisbon that runs pilot programs with them. So it was really important to bring in aspects of accessibility. So that's what, what I wanted to focus really on cool. with them. So what is your focus now then? How, where did you land? Like apart from WebXR news. One thing doing the awareness stuff, right? I, I, I mean, on the one hand, I, I want to keep my feet in the real world. The problem with the WebXR world is that you're in that bubble and you think everyone understands you and you think that users will use it. And the, the point is like, unless you bridge it, you will not get to get anywhere because there's a small subsection of users that might use your product in order to kind of take away the chasm, bridge that. Like I wanted to bring in like XR into mainstream 2D software. I'm doing the A-Frame New York City Meetup Group, uh, the outreach programs. I went to go to festivals and like do tech villages and all this kind of stuff to showcase what you can do with ARJS just as a hook. And then also with like workshops and like challenges and like, uh, like one of the things I, I, I did the last three years they send out uh, postcards with a QR code on it that augments a 3D object, build an A-frame on top of it. Mm -hmm. So I send that to all my friends across the, I send one to, to my friend Fabian that you had on the, on the phone. <laughs> so, so he, he got my postcard and, and then also the Diego from Super Medium, he got a postcard. Cool. Like all, all the, all the uh, friends that I have over there across the board get, get those postcards and then they take photos and share them, right? So now you have uh, AR postcards, which are basically mainstream, right? Like there's a real product company out there that does exactly the same thing. It's like, I mean, it's good because you can monetize it, right? But, but anyway, so. What can we do? What can you do? Where's like, where's the imagination going? I joined the Mozilla tech speakers, which actually is funny because Andre Major is actually also a tech speaker, right? So I, I have known him through like Fabian and, and him through the tech speaker program that unfortunately closed up uh, during Corona. But I also do like uh, a lot of hackathons in order to like prove concepts. One of the presentations I did at the accessibility VR meetup, a presentation about building automation systems SaaS company where I basically wanted to build a proof of concept of this 
three-dimensional building, right? But I wanted to make it accessible and scalable. So it could be baked into the existing code stack, which is a web app, right? So I built a prototype and make sure that I can actually do it, right? Just describe semantically a a three-dimensional building and make it at the same time screen readable. So you can navigate it with a keyboard and you can navigate it uh, with swipe on voiceover or whatever, like assistive technology you have. Hitting all those 1D, 2D, 3D, uh, and VR interactivity was one of the goals that I had for this hackathon. Like I think the video is on my website where I talk about building from hack to feature, like the, the using hackathons to leverage innovative approaches, like bring something into the product pipeline at the company. I'm, I'm talking at length on how to strategize and build that out because not, not all companies can afford a dual track design process, right? Where you have the things that are in a pipeline that need to be shipped and then the experimentative stuff that that focus on the, the light layer and the kernel model, right? Where you say, these are the features that put our product far above and far beyond the competition, right? This is where I'm trying to like t- teach people, like you can use this, you can experiment, test it, test it, test it, make sure it works. It gives you additional, you use additional value. And if it is, just bake it in, you know, like with model viewer is absolutely no brainer now to like showcase your e-commerce products in, in AR, right? The product pipeline, yes. Like how do you get the 3D assets? That's one thing, but like shipping it or like building it into the ecosystem is not a, a big lift anymore, right? Even, so it's, even, it's, the, even getting the 3D model is becoming easier with uh, LiDAR cameras or photogrammetry being even more accessible to low cost users. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So LiDAR and Sketchfab, they've been showing those examples. So when it comes down to it, and that's a, one of the challenges that Pilar at uh, Herman Miller does. Herman Miller is this chair and like furniture company is super prominent. Her, her biggest challenge is the pipeline, not, not actually the delivery of AR, how to source all the different kinds of materials and textures and all the kind of things that make the customizable products, right? And how do you pipe it into the serial numbers of the, uh, the products, you know? So, and interestingly enough, right? Like this is not something new, like visualizing AR uh, has been mainstream for IKEA, has been mainstream now for uh, Wayfair, right? You, you know, Wayfair, the app where you can basically play stuff in your room. Even Amazon has been doing this. Like Amazon has been under the under the hood, making things visible in your, in your room. You can literally pick a few objects, like a few items on, on your Amazon app right now and place them in your room. And, and they actually do some kind of interesting photogrammetry out of still images or something like that. So yeah. it's not perfect, but it actually works. Uh, and the point about this is understanding dimension, right? If you buy a product, you want to try it before you buy it. So you need to place it if it fits. Like for furniture, does a, does a sofa fit? Is the sofa high enough or low enough for a person that maybe has arthritis and cannot sit and lift themselves up if the sofa is too low, right? That kind of thinking, you need to place that object in a space to understand it. And you don't want to like drive to the store and like see it in person. Maybe you can't, you can't, right? This is the added benefit I'm talking about, right? Like if, if you can bring an XR to a degree that makes sense to give your user added benefit, added value, absolutely use it. Right. But if you use it as an alternative to something that already works so well, then no one's going to adapt it. 
no one's gonna care. So the, that's the the silver lining where you have to like be on on the edge and interesting, but also useful, right? So as a final question, um, since you've experienced a lot of the development of the web really closely and the previous development of VR and AR on the web very closely, where do you think everything is going? Where do you see web VR, web AR in three to five years? I definitely think that we're going to get uh, progressive immersive web applications. I mean, we have seen it happening on traditional uh, mobile apps. And, and it's going to be like, it, you, you'll basically have an app icon on your VR, AR headset that you press and then you open up that web app in a like, con like web container and uh, navigate that kind of content. That's absolutely going to ha happen. It will be interesting how they, they will figure out navigating between different sites, um, maybe with some kind of, uh, tokens or something. Because like traversal has always been an issue, especially for security. Um, but one thing, another thing that I think will happen is uh, cloud-based VR and AR products. And you have seen it as Adobe uh, or like Slack or Google Docs, like everything is basically running on the browser. Um, so you, this is going to be the future. I think Unity, simply the fact that they export to WebXR right now, even though that the export is not, not as pretty to dissect once it's exported, you can't really modify any of it, but it is going there, right? You want to like feed content through a, a website. I think that's, that's what Amazon's, uh, AWS, um, Sumerian is uh, banking on because all of the content is shared via the cloud. I think the, the most interesting kind of thing that I'm going to predict now, I don't know if it's going to happen, but I believe it's going to happen is cross device content. That means content that works in symphony with like IoT, projection mapping, holographic displays, and smart glasses. So like basically have multiple devices and a shared content. So you go from a visualization, something you carry with you, and then go to the next space. And thinking about the Apple ecosystem, because they're, they're, they've been now they've uh, WebKit announced that they're going to be developing WebXR natively into their software stack, which means Safari finally gets on board with WebXR. Doesn't, we don't need to use any kind of polyfill anymore because of AR headsets or whatever they're going to come out with. You have, you have like a six, you have the six stuff spatial headphones. You have a biometric smartwatch that could be directly like it could be a controller. You have like, you have the smart glasses that will be probably with some kind of Wi-Fi stream uh, powered by your heavy-duty iPhone, right? So you don't actually have the heavy mathematician stuff going on on the glasses, but on the on a mobile phone. So similar to the, the Magic League right now or the uh, Neo Jet. Yeah, most, most of them have an, ex an external power pack, but they have cables right now, but I think there's going to be some kind of next-level Wi-Fi that will help with that. And then you have the Apple TV that could be synced with projectors. So there's so much there. They have a functioning de device ecosystem them, then the only thing that really is king and that's always going to be like that is the content, right? Like you can have the fanciest device. If you don't have the content, then you don't have a product. The most flexible way to produce content and share it across different devices is WebXR as web-based content. So I think that's going to be the big, big push. I mean, you know that Spatial is working on that kind of native app approach where you have cross-device functionality. But in the, in the long run, I think it's just going to be like websites cool. and that's it. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Where do people find you online on Twitter, LinkedIn, all those social media, media links? On Twitter, it's Roland Dubois. 
written together. <laughs> it's like very uncreative. Webexone <laughs> <laughs> News uh, on Twitter and or webexonnews.com. You can follow my uh, AFM New York City Meetup Group or the WebXR in New York City Meetup Group. I am hosting both of those. Drop me a line if you're interested in discussing uh, accessibility or like prototyping some fancy things. Uh, always interested and always around hackathons uh, and, and sometimes mentor, sometimes participate depending on what's uh, what, what I feel like. And Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. We'll put links to all that in the description for all people who want to check it out. And other than that, thank you very much for being on the show. And thank you from me. And hear you guys later. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.